If you would keep, keep your bulletin out or your Bible out to uh, Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll, we'll be looking a little more closely at both of those in a few minutes. We are almost uh, at the conclusion of our series this fall, uh, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline uh, of the Bible. We come now to this place where the church... Uh, has been left and filled by the Spirit of Jesus uh, to continue uh, the mission of Jesus until he comes again. And uh, we are calling this section of the story the proclaimed kingdom because it is the church's uh, right and privilege and responsibility to proclaim the good news that Jesus the King has come. And we do that until he comes again. So that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning, or I'm going to talk about it, and hopefully you're going to listen. Let's pray about that. (laughs) Father, um, we come and we recognize, um, as Jesus said, uh, apart from him, we can do nothing. And uh, I feel that this morning. I pray that you would help, um, help me to... Articulate your word uh, clearly, but, but even doing that, unless your spirit comes and takes your word and puts it on the heart of your people, um, it has no power. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see uh, Jesus and to see what you're saying to us in your word. Open our ears to hear you speak to us about who we are. Uh, as your people in this time. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been your pastor for almost a year, and I've been having some conversations uh, lately that are great. People asking questions like, so who, who are we as Mountain Fellowship? Where are we, where are we going? Um, having some good conversations with folks about that and uh, intend to, uh, we are going to have conversations with that as elders uh, soon. Uh, We're going to, particularly starting in January, sit down and really start to hash out a little bit. What does it look like to rediscover our mission uh, statement for today? Our mission statement, you've, you've seen it, it's on the front of your bulletin. Sharing God's deep gladness in renewing all things. That's what we believe God has called Mountain Fellowship to be about. Um, And the question that uh, I have is, what does that mean? And then what does that look like for who Mountain Fellowship is today? Um, I don't believe, I've told a couple of folk, I, I don't believe that it's my job to come in here and tell you who you ought to be. Uh, my job is to help you discover who God tells you you ought to be. And, uh, and so that's, I want to partner with you to do that. And so uh, we're going to at least start that conversation with the elders soon. But it is my job, since you've called me to come and preach and teach God's word to you, it is my job for, to help us together look at God's word and ask the question, who is the church? What is the church to be about um, and so we're going to do a little of that this morning because it, 
it has implications for every church, but particularly for us uh, at Mountain Fellowship. So that's uh, what I want us to do a little bit in Acts and First Thessalonians this morning. Uh, before we get there, um, if you've been around Christian circles long enough, you may have heard uh, a famous quote that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He uh, reportedly said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And so, uh, according to that quote, um, you can preach the gospel without using words. And before we think about that for a second, let me let you know, historians have actually shown that he probably didn't say that. Uh, uh, In the first 200 years after he died, none of his biographers mentioned that statement. And in fact, what we find from reading his biographies is that St. Francis was quite the preacher himself. He would preach in up to five different villages uh, a day, preaching the gospel. He was a preacher, so he did use words quite often to preach the gospel, but, but that doesn't mean that there's not something in that statement that would be helpful. Maybe, maybe uh, we could rephrase it um, and say, preach and practice the gospel, because both are necessary. And I believe that's what Jesus and the apostles would tell us. I believe that's what they modeled for us. Um, they both, they, they had a show-and-tell ministry. They showed the gospel in its effect. They showed it. Jesus gave us a taste of the kingdom when he cast out demons. He said, if I can cast out demons, then that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. He showed us in his healing ministry. Uh, he showed us in his teaching ministry. But he also told the good news of the gospel. And we see that the apostles, the disciples, did the same thing. Um, In fact, we we read about this preaching and practicing ministry in the catechism this morning. Um, When it says, what is the church? Um, The answer was, God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. And then it says this, God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and to prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. So there's, there's a proclaiming the gospel ministry of the church, but there's also a practicing ministry of the church where the way we live life together as a community prefigures the kingdom that is to come because it's already come. It's uh, the way we do life together is a preview of coming attractions. And so that's what I believe Jesus and the apostles did, and and we're going to see an example of that in Acts in just a moment. Um, But first I want to, I found this very helpful illustration by a a guy named Craig Van Gelder, in a church he wrote about, uh, in a book he wrote about the church. And uh, this is what he said. Um, he said that when he grew up on a farm in rural I- Iowa, um, his dad was a farmer. Um, and he said each county in the state 
employed an extension agent to work with farmers. These extension agents were usually university graduates with degrees in agriculture. As As new farming technologies and seeds and fertilizers became available, the extension agents introduced these new things to the farmers. He said, my dad, like many farmers, were often hesitant to accept these new innovations. Uh, And so a method that the extension agents used to help convince the farmers to use these new methods and, and seeds and fertilizers was to create what was called a demonstration plot. And he said, a strip of land, usually along a major roadway, was selected as a demonstration plot where a new farming method or seed or fertilizer was used to raise a crop. And um, so it, it was not uncommon for the farmer to, farmers to remain skeptical through the summer. And, and, you know, and then when harvest time came, they were all very curious to see how this demonstration plot was going to perform. Invariably, he said, the, de- the innovation, the demonstration plot performed better than the crops that surrounded them. And so by the next year, many farmers, including my dad, he said, would be using the innovation as if it had been their idea all along. Um, And so what Van Gelder then says is, the church is God's demonstration plot. He said its very existence demonstrates that his redemptive reign has already begun. Its very presence invites the world to watch, listen, examine, and consider accepting God's reign as a superior way of living. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. Jesus sent his extension agents, the apostles, to begin to sow the seed of the word of the kingdom all over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when they proclaimed the good news of Christ and his kingdom, that word that they proclaimed took root and began to produce fruit. And so those who received the proclaimed word of the kingdom began to practice the works of the kingdom. And that's what we see happening in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Um, so I want us to see that practicing and proclaiming the gospel work together. In fact, one of them produces the other. Proclaiming the gospel produces the practice um, in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul and his companions arrive and they begin to proclaim the gospel uh, to the folks in Thessalonica. And then we'll see in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is writing back, we'll learn what the results, what fruit was produced in that demonstration plot. Um, there was something that happened because the way uh, that the people in Thessalonica described the effect that these Christians had was to say, and they, they didn't mean this in a positive light, um, they said, um, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And, and actually what that means is they, they upset things, they turned over the apple cart. They turned the world upside down. Actually, what they were doing was turning the world right side up by planting seeds of the kingdom to grow kingdom communities who lived the way that God 
designed us to live. Um, so, the church proclaimed Jesus as king. Paul said in Acts 17.3, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. But the church also practiced Jesus as king. Um, this is what the enemies of Paul and his companions and the Christians in that city were saying. They said, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Well, actually, that translation is kind of rough. Uh, according to my friend T.M. Moore, who taught Greek to seminary students for years, this verse actually could and probably should be translated this way. Against the, dis against the decrees of Caesar, they are practicing another king, saying him to be Jesus. So against Caesar's decree, which is to say Caesar is Lord, these folks are practicing another king, and they're saying his name is Jesus. They weren't just saying that there's another king who happens to be Jesus. They were practicing another king while saying and proclaiming that that king's name is Jesus. So they weren't just telling people about King Jesus. They were showing them what it looks like to live under the reign of King Jesus. That's what uh, Van Gelder means when he says the church is to bear witness to God's redemptive reign. So this uh, Thessalonian case study is going to show us that the proclaimed word of the kingdom is actually what produces the works of the kingdom. Uh, when Christ crucified is preached and sets the root, then it produces fruit. And we know that uh, it worked in the Thessalonians' case because of the letter that Paul wrote to them much later. Um, he uh, had gotten a report from Timothy. Uh, Timothy had visited with the Thessalonian church, and Paul said in chapter 2 of 1 uh, Thessalonians that Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love. Um, and, though, and so in a moment, we're going to look at chapter 1 and see uh, what that report consisted of. What was, it that, what was the fruit that was being produced uh, by the gospel that was proclaimed there? But first, how did Paul proclaim the word of the kingdom? How did he plant it in Thessalonica? Um, three things, pretty quickly. In Acts 17.3, um, it says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus, you know, the carpenter from, Naz from Nazareth, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is this Christ who has been promised by the prophets. Um, he's the one who came to right all that went wrong. And so the church has to be a church of the story. And we've said that time and time again, but I want to remind us that Mountain Fellowship must be a church who both individually and corporately tell the story of Jesus. We need to tell, we need to tell people using the Bible that there is a God who created humans to live in perfect and pur uh, purposeful community with him. 
to rest in his love and then respond to his love with love back to him, out to our neighbors, in the places he puts us. We need to tell people that all of our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against this great king. And that because of that, now we're all cut off from that original relationship with God and people in creation. And that, yes, as sinners, we continue to rebel and are therefore under God's just judgment. We have to tell them that. We have to tell them from the Scriptures that God so loved the world, He loved the world so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, who came in our skin to die for our sin. So that whoever would turn to him and trust him would be saved from God's punishment, but be saved to the purpose for which he created them. We have to tell the people that story. We have to connect the story that's in the Bible to the person and work of Jesus. Listen, I got to go uh, with Dave Renetti earlier this week and sit down and talk with Miss Tate Flanagan. And she simply told us this story. Her mom and dad asked her two questions. The first question was, what's the bad news? And Tate said, the bad news is that God won't let sin into his presence, and we all have sin. And they said, well, what's the good news? And she said, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin so that we can be with God. These parents have been telling their daughter the story. And they use a very simple illustration to help her get it. If you come to the house and mom opens the door and you're all muddy from playing outside and you're just covered in mud and filth, mama ain't going to let you in her house like that. That's just not how it works. If you want to be in mama's house, you're going to have to get clean. (laughs) And Jesus has come to wash away our sin. And when we baptize her in just a little bit, we're going to picture that, the washing away of our sin that allows us to enter into the presence of the one who loves us. We have to tell people the story. And then notice that Paul... um, courageously pursued people. He, he connected people, all kinds of people, to the person and work of Jesus. It, it says that he connected Jews to Jesus. He connected Gentiles to Jesus. It even specifically mean, uh, mentions he connected women. Some of the leading women in Thessalonica believed the story of Jesus and submitted to him as king. You have to understand that in that context, no wonder the Jews who led the synagogue in that area were infuriated with him. First, he was taking away some of their Jewish attendees. Second, he was inviting Gentiles into the family of God. And third, he was elevating women to a status that, frankly, they didn't have at that time. Jesus, uh, Paul's preaching the story to all people. This is a story that embraces all, our neighbors, the nations, the next generation. 
And we must do that too. And then, uh, Paul and his companions combined their proclamation of the Jesus-centered story with the practice of a Jesus-centered community. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, go over there now, Look at, listen to what he said. He said, our gospel came to you not only in word, so yes, we did tell you the story, the gospel, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves because you had become so dear to us. So listen, when we are proclaiming the gospel as a church or as individuals, uh, we're not just doing this in our own power. We're, we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're relying on the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're relying on the passion that the Holy Spirit gives us for this story. But we're also doing it out of the context of a people who have been brought together and filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't tell people the story alone all the time. One commentator on that passage said, what a powerful combination. Here is the true gospel combined with the most affectionate presentation. We not only gave you the gospel, but our own selves. We gave you our lives. He says, all this in the service of the Holy Spirit. How then can it surprise us that these missionaries had been so successful? In a book uh, called Total Church, the authors make this observation. I think it's worth repeating. Proclaiming the good news about Jesus is best done out of the context of a gospel community whose corporate life demonstrates the reality of the word that gave her life. We are that demonstration plot. So when we preach the gospel to Signal Mountain, Walden, in the valley, we're doing it out of a community that demonstrates the reality of the very message that we're preaching. Community, Christian community is a vital part of Christian mission. Mission takes place as people see our love for one another. The gospel is communicated both through the words that we say and the lives that we live. The gospel word and the gospel community are closely connected. The word creates and nourishes the community while the community proclaims and embodies the word. And so that leads us from the proclaiming Jesus as king to the practicing Jesus as king. And uh, here... Here's the fruit of that seed of the gospel that, that Paul and his companions planted in Thessalonica. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 with me. And I have in, in your notes section, there are five quick things that I want to point out in 1 Thessalonians 3. What was the fruit that was, that was produced by the gospel that was proclaimed? First, this church, these people in Thessalonica, uh, they bore the kingdom's marks. What were those marks? They were faith, hope, and love. He said, we remember before our God your work of faith 
and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These were the marks by which Paul measured maturity in his churches. You know, Paul, Paul never wrote to churches and said, how many did you have in attendance? What was your offering? Now, we, we as officers in the church kind of want to know those things because they help you keep track of something. But they're not, they're not what we care about most. What we care about most is, do our people exhibit faith? Do they exhibit hope? Love? Are we maturing that way? And so I want to ask, um, do we see these marks of the kingdom at Mountain Fellowship? Is our work coming from faith or trust or rest in Jesus and what he has done? Or are we resting and trusting in what we can do? Are we laboring in love for one another? Relationships take work. That's why it's a labor of love. Are we steadfast and standing firm in our hope that Jesus is forever alive, that he's for us, and that he's coming back for us? Now, I see those things in you. Do you see them in us? Do we long to see them more? But these folks also behaved like the kingdom's messengers. In verse 6, Paul said, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay, when you start talking about imitating your leaders, that makes all of your leaders nervous and want to go home um, because we understand who we are. Um, but this is what Paul says. You started imitating us. Um, and then he explains what that looked like. He said, you received the gospel in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We even saw in this story today, they, Paul and his companions gave the gospel and were afflicted for it. They received the gospel, and they received afflictions because they had the gospel and were giving it to others, but they did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So now I have a question for the quote-unquote leaders of Mountain Fellowship, including myself. Are we elders and deacons, Bible teachers, fellowship group leaders, youth leaders, moms and dads, are we receiving the gospel ourselves? Are we, are we hearing God preach his good news to us, even and in spite of affliction and hardship? Are we receiving the story of Jesus and his love with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Is our regular repentance of our sin, our faith in Jesus, and our obedience to Jesus worth imitating? Which, by the way, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should offer some sort of perfection to people to imitate? If if my goal is for my children to learn how to repent of their sin, to trust Jesus has died for their sin, and then submit to him out of obedience, then that's what I get to do. I need to not present to them a person who never needs to repent, who never needs to trust Jesus, and who never submits to him. 
I need to not act like I've got it all together, and when are they going to get theirs together, right? What I want them to imitate is a needy man who knows he needs Jesus and clings to him every day because he's a sinner and clings to his grace and submits to his commands. We can do that. We could do that as a church. We could do that as leaders. We could be the chief repenters. And so because they followed their kingdom models, they then became kingdom models. In verse 7, Paul said, you became an example to all the believers in this whole region. What would it, what would it be like if the people of Mountain Fellowship were so broken by their sin, so repentant, so desperate to cling to Jesus and all that he is for us in the gospel, and so submissive to what he calls us to do. What if we were like that so much that we somehow, not trying to, but became examples to the Tennessee Valley? In verse 8, they then broadcasted the kingdom message. It says, your, he said, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Paul says, we don't need to say anything because you're broadcasting the faith yourself. And then in verse 9, he says, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. They bowed only to the kingdom's Messiah not their own pseudo-saviors. And so that, that makes me ask myself and you the question, is there personal transformation taking place in each of us because we had the, plant, the, God, uh, the gospel planted in us? Is there personal transformation taking place in you? Are you growing? Are you changing? And I don't mean by leaps and bounds. I mean even if a little bit. What idols could it be said that you and I have turned from so that we can more effectively serve King Jesus? Because when the seed of the word of the kingdom falls on good soil that's been prepared by the Spirit of God, then a church becomes a God's demonstration plot. Demonstrating what it looks like when Christ is king in a community. So yes, Mountain Fellowship, we proclaim the gospel. And we will be a church that continues to go back to this story time and time again because we desperately need it. The only way that we can practice the kingdom, the kingship of Jesus, is to proclaim it to ourselves again and again and again. We desperately need this seed planted in our hearts over and over again. One last thought. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 4-5 that I was particularly convicted by um, actually in the last couple of weeks. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4-5. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. 
with ourselves as your servants, the word is actually slaves, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. We're not proclaiming ourselves, we're proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. If we're going to proclaim anything about ourselves, it's, it's going to be that we're your servants for his sake, is what Paul is saying. And as I've thought about this, the danger of the temptation for Mountain Fellowship or for me is that we proclaim ourselves instead of Jesus. Because, listen, any church that begins to produce the kind of fruit that we just saw in in the Thessalonians is going to be known by their fruit. And is going to be tempted to say, well, aren't we the church? What's the matter with XYZ Church down the road? Why aren't they building wheelchair ramps? Why aren't they discipling their children? Why aren't they whatever? If we become the people that God, by his spirit, wants us to become, the temptation will be then to start proclaiming ourselves instead of Jesus. And so my conviction is that I must proclaim myself as your slave for Jesus' sake. I must proclaim myself as Signal Mountain's slave for Jesus' sake. You and I together as a congregation must proclaim ourselves as Signal Mountain and Walden's slaves for Jesus' sake as we proclaim him as the king. So is that what we're signing up for? And that's why when you start to understand what, what it is God has called us to, to be the servants of Signal and Walden, of Hamilton and Sequatchie counties, be their servants, to be the servants of the people in our houses, to be the servants of our neighbors, to be the servants of the nations, to be servants of the next generation. When we start to understand that's what our calling is, to do that for the sake of Jesus, we recognize we need Jesus. (laughs) And so that's why we need to keep proclaiming the gospel to ourselves. We are beggars we tell other beggars where we found bread. Father, would you, uh, by your grace, by your spirit and by your word, would you make us that kind of people? Would you cause this little demonstration plot that you've planted up here on this mountain, to be fruitful? Would you, by your Spirit, make us servants of our neighbors and the nations and the next generation? Would you you do that? For Jesus' sake, 
for the sake of these people who need him? Would you do that and would you get us out of the way if we're getting in the way of you doing that? We ask. Because it would bring you glory. It would be for the world's good. And it would give us much gladness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.